Hello, I'm Bonnie Estes, your host of Fresh Takes on Tech. Welcome to our season focusing on nutrition and the ways produce plays an important role. Today, we are talking to Joyce Van Eck, Associate Professor at Boyce Thompson Institute. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Bonnie. So let's start out. Um, tell us about what you're focusing on and your research at BTI. Sure. So the, um, my background is in plant breeding and genetics, and my, the focus of my research is something called plant biotechnology or what's now being called plant bioengineering. And we're using that to study the function of genes, understand what the genes are doing so that we could use that information for crop improvements. And you know, we've been doing this for a number of years now and um, have been through all the different types of technologies that are used, but it all goes back to crop improvement, plant breeding, and genetics. So tell me about your lab. Like, how many people do you have working with you, and, and what specific things are you focusing on? Sure. So I thought maybe people might not know about the Boyce Thompson Institute, so I thought I might start there. So, so the Boyce Thompson Institute, or BTI, is uh, a plant research institute. Well, we do have two labs that are not doing plant research, but it's primarily a plant research or a, a life sciences discovery institute. And we're located on the Cornell University campus, but we are not Cornell. We're considered an independent um, affiliate of Cornell, but we have all these great benefits. Like we can have students, both undergraduates and graduate students working in our labs, and we have access to facilities and the library. So, and also collaborators. So it's a, it's a great situation for us. And in my lab, we, I have seven people right now. I have two graduate students who are, you know, students at Cornell University and um, three technicians and two postdocs. Great. And you have space there on campus, both greenhouse field and, and lab space. Is that kind of the setup? Yep. So my lab space is at uh, BTI. We also have our own greenhouse space. And my field, that's another nice um, thing about being at Cornell is I have access to Cornell Field. And right now we have um, some of our, I'll talk about it later, but some of our ground cherry and goldenberry plants in the field. And they're maintained by uh, Cornell Field and Farm um, personnel. Great. So let's get into your crops. So what crops do you work on? I, I'm so excited to talk about this and, and have listeners hear about your work on, on these species. So I primarily work on two species called ground cherry and goldenberry. And they're these cute little yellow fruits that um, are in the same family as tomato. Tomatoes in this family, really large family with about 3,000 different species. Um, but this, these ground cherry and goldenberries are part of this family, and um, they're sweet. You know, un, unlike people often think they might taste like um, cherry tomatoes because they kind of look like cherry tomatoes, except that they're yellow. But they're um, not; they don't taste like that at all. They're very, they're very sweet compared to uh, cherry tomatoes. So we, we, those are our primary crops, and we also work on tomato. And we recently started working with eggplants, but these really oddball eggplants. So not the types that we're used to seeing. These are um, wild species of eggplants. And also there's a group called African eggplants. And the reason we started working with those is to take what we've learned in tomato and ground cherry and goldenberry and apply that to improvement of these eggplants. And eggplant in the U.S. isn't a very big crop, but in countries like Africa and Southeast Asia, they are uh, a big part of the diet. Mm -hmm. And are there certain things about the eggplant species that you're working on that you want to, um, why do those instead of the big purple ones that we know? What's the difference? Mm -hmm. So one of the um, 
it's kind of a theme in my group right now is kind of um, improving these underutilized species and trying to correct some of the undesirable characteristics. And one of those is the plant growth habit. They can be quite large and unmanageable to grow, especially in agronomic situations. But then um, also a lot of them have these prickles or what I prickles kind of sounds cute and soft, but they're really thorns. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> they make it pretty difficult to work with. So we're looking at um, you know, trying to understand the genes that are involved in that prickle formation and um, remove those prickles so that they're not as uh, uncomfortable to work with in, in the field and for breeders and farmers. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Um, so with the uh, ground cherry and the goldenberry, what traits are you working on with that? And what are some of the nutritional qualities you're looking for as well? So we're um, so ground cherry and goldenberry are both um, species that we wanted to work with because they are there's been there's been very little improvement in these in these crops and we see them as potential as new specialty fruit crops in the U.S. but they need some of these undesirable characteristics to correct it. One of those is a very large growth habit. Um, ground, ground cherries are very sprawling, which makes it difficult for, you know, again, in the larger agricultural setting to grow them. Uh, golden berries don't sprawl, but they're tall. They grow really, um, like by the time we plant them in May and by the time July comes around, they're about six feet tall and they'll oh continue gosh. to grow and we have to stake them and trellis them. So there's a lot of, you know, time and resources that goes into making this manageable. So we're trying to make them more compact. And then one of the other characteristics for um, ground cherry is that they're called ground cherry because the fruit drops to the ground. And that makes it really difficult for farmers to harvest, but it also imposes this um, foodborne illness potential because you're gathering them up from the ground. And in, even though they have these little husks around them, you're still getting you know, dirt on them. And, and uh, that poses, can pose a problem in the future. So we're looking at trying to understand what makes that drop happen and trying to correct that. And then in a consumer, um, we did a consumer sensory evaluation in collaboration with Cornell. And some of the feedback we got was that the consumers would like to see the ground cherries be a bit bigger. So we're looking at increasing the fruit size of the ground cherry. And there, you are they grown commercially? I mean, I've had some and I've seen them in stores. There must be some producers that feel like they can charge enough money that they can go through all of that to grow them. But it's very, it's rare and they're expensive and, and it's a short season, right? Yeah. So, so for those reasons that I mentioned earlier, it's what makes it expensive having to deal, you know, deal with all those issues. So um, ground cherries, you'll often find at farmer's markets. You won't find them in the stores, um, but goldenberry, you will find in the stores occasionally. And the goldenberries aren't grown in the U.S. They're grown um, mainly in Colombia. They're the biggest exporter of goldenberries. Oh, really? Interesting. Yep. It's actually second to banana um, and exports for Colombia. And it wasn't until 2014 that goldenberries were allowed into the U.S. because there was a problem with this fruit fly. And the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, yeah. really wanted to make sure this wasn't going to be introduced into, um, into the U.S. So, um, so yeah, so it's only been about, what, eight years? And in Goldenberry, you don't find it very often in the stores, but, um, but there are times. I'm actually starting to see it more now, so it's good, it's good to see. They sell them with the husks on, right? The, the little paper husks, I, I've yeah. seen it both ways, but mainly with the husks off um, oh. in these little clam shells. And they're expensive. They're like 
almost $6 a clamshell in some of the stores that I've seen them. Um, I have seen one producer does sell them with the husk and, and um, others don't. And that was part of our, I mentioned this consumer panel survey that we did. And we, we got, you know, we asked people, do you like it with the husk or don't you like them with the husk? And they, um, mainly people like them with the husk because they thought it was more of their natural state. And it made them kind of interesting. But the other feedback we got was concern that if they were in the husk, how do you know there aren't insects in them? And how do you know oh, they don't have they aren't moldy? And um, so it was it was interesting to get that feedback on you know, on the preference. But primarily, when I see them in the in the grocery stores, it's without the husk. Hmm. I don't know why the ones I've seen have had it. I, I buy uh, tomatillas because I make a lot of Mexican food. And so I'm used to seeing the husk anyway on, on those. So Yeah. Yeah. And those in the ground cherry and golden berries are related. They're in that same genus called Syphilis, which is the, the people are most familiar with tomatillos. So, uh, but we're hoping that people get more familiar with ground cherries and golden berries. Yeah. And you had mentioned before that there's, um, you're doing a little bit of work and looking at um, folic acid and the, uh, just the, what's some of the nutritional qualities of them. Right. So, so one thing about ground cherries and golden berries is they are very nutritious. They've got good vitamin C content, beta carotene. They also have these um, oils or they're called um, um, healthy oils, you know, the small concentration, but, but they're there, these phytosterols. And there isn't anything known about folic acid. And that's something that um, I think that knowledge gap can be filled. And we're starting to look at um, the folic acid. So right now we have a lot of different types of ground cherries and golden berries in the field. And one of my grad students will be harvesting the fruit at different stages and then evaluating those four folic acid contents. So you had mentioned that you're looking at some of the eggplants. Um, what are some of the other orphan crops that you are looking at and how can this be, how can this work be a model to, to work on other kinds of crops that we could grow? Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of the reasons that we started working with the ground cherry and golden berry as you know, these orphan or underutilized species is that we wanted to take what we learned in tomato and apply that to a species to show that you can fast track improvement or sort of fast track domestication of these underutilized species to make them a viable option to help diversify our food supply. Um, so in addition to us thinking they could be a specialty fruit crop, we also felt that they were a model, kind of to spark that idea into people to say, oh, you know, this could be a really good nutritious um, new fruit or vegetable, but it, but it has these issues with plant growth habits. Um, so that's where we started, and that's where uh, my main work um, is is now. And then we're now getting into these um, these eggplant types, and that that will be the next underutilized species. There are you know there are others. There are um, people who've asked me to be involved in projects. There was a you know um, someone from Africa who said that there was this really interesting grain called phonio, and it's you know it's adapted. The, the one nice thing about thinking about using these underutilized species is they're already adapted to their environment, mm -hmm. um, but just with some tweaks to make it you know more realistic to grow um, at an agricultural level. But she said one of the problems was that the grain is very small and it drops it drops its grain, so it can only be grown on a small level, but you know very nutritious and again adapted to their you know adapted to their environment. So, so we're not working on that yet. It's something I would love to do, but it all comes down to funding and trying to get funding to, to do this work. This season, we are focusing on nutrition and the role that produce plays. Thank you to our sponsor, Conscious Foods from Pairwise. Driven by the belief that healthy foods should be consistently fresh, delicious, and convenient, 
Conscious Foods is a flagship brand under Pearwise, a mission-driven company that is building a healthier world through better fruits and vegetables. Pearwise uses gene editing to accelerate innovations in consumer foods with a focus on produce. To find out more, go to ConsciousFoods.net or Pearwise.com. So let's switch and talk about one of your favorite subjects, and that's your community <laughs> science project. And I know this is a project that you are rightfully super proud of. Um, so can you tell us about the project and how long you've been doing it and what the scope is? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's my favorite project of my career. And the, and the way it got started, don't tell my other projects that, but, um, but the way... The way <laughs> The way it got started was that when we started working with the ground cherry and goldenberry and improvements, I felt that we really needed to get um, firsthand feedback from farmers and home gardeners and consumers based on what they thought improvements were needed instead of us sitting here thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it's plant growth habit. But, you know, what really is more meaningful to those people who would be growing it? And the other part of that I thought was important was to um, have, you know, use it as a, a way to build the familiarity with ground cherry and golden berry. So you don't want to improve something and then just bring it on people and say, oh, look, it isn't this wonderful. But they, you know, they don't know what it is. And so you're kind of taking them on that journey to, you know, this is what they are. You try them, here's some seeds, grow them. And that's really what I felt was important to do. Having never done anything in that in my life like that. Um, I started, I started small and, uh, you know, funding again, it came down to funding. So I put together a proposal and submitted it to a local foundation here in Ithaca, New York called the triad foundation. And the triad provides funding to BTI. Um, and we write proposals, but it's to help get projects off the ground that we can't get funding from other agencies because we don't have like preliminary data or information to build a proposal. So I submitted this proposal to them and I, you know, posted is that we would stay within New York state. Um, I had 11 farms who agreed, 11 farmers who agreed to grow them and also um, some um, home gardeners. And then we had like botanic botanic gardens here at Cornell who also also grew them. So we provided seeds and, and or plants to people and they grew them and gave us feedback. And it was just, it was wonderful because it was exactly what I had hoped would happen is that we would get very useful information on what was, what was the problems. And that was plant growth habit and, and the fruit drop. But something that we weren't aware of, because we up until that point had been growing them in the greenhouse. So we were doing a, our field in this parallel. This was in 2018 and um, was on insects, there were insect problems oh. on the golden berry, on the golden berry, but not the ground cherry. And it was this three-lined potato beetle that would just decimate the golden berry, but not the ground cherry. And that's something, again, huh. having grown them in the greenhouse that we didn't see. So that started a whole new project for us to try to determine, you know, what is in ground cherry that's making them, you know, more resistant or tolerant mm-hmm. of these insects compared to the golden berry. So that was, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. And then at the end of the season, we had a harvest celebration and invited people um, to this event. And then the second year, I was feeling more confident, needed more funding. So I took that information from that first year and and approached the um, National Science Foundation or NSF. And um, they really liked it and they fully funded it. And we branched out into, you see, our first year, we had about 40 participants. The second year, we had about 80 participants. And then we branched out in the United States. We had 18 states involved. Wow. Great feedback. And then um, the third year, we um, there was a, a journalist at the uh, LA Times who wrote an article about the project. So she interviewed me, and 
And um, we got inundated with requests through our website. We had like almost 1,400 requests for seeds. And we oh certainly gosh. didn't have that many seeds to, um, to share. So we had to shut down the website. Um, and then our business office started getting calls, you know, and they said that, you know, our phones are, you know, just, we had, you know, they're just, it's crazy. They were getting so many it calls. It's crazy. And wow. I know. It was, and it was wonderful. Um, so we, but we ended up with 750 participants in wow. um, 43 different states, including Alaska and Hawaii. Wow. Um, and, and getting all that feedback and that information about how, you know, regional issues and this three-line potato beetle I mentioned was pretty much prevalent across regions. Oh, but there really? was another insect. There was another insect called the uh, Scleridia subplexa, which affects the fruit of goldenberry, um, but not ground cherry. And that was more specific in certain regions. And so it was just wonderful to get the you know, the positive feedback. And that was we had those 750 participants in 2020, so during the height of COVID, wow. and we got uh, so many nice uh, emails saying, "What a great, you know, project to have." Well, I'm, you know, I, I can't do anything else with my kids. <laughs> we're, we're growing these plants, and and um, so it's been it's been a lot of fun. So, um, how many since, seeds did you give, like each person that was involved? How many seeds would you give them? So we gave them three different types of ground cherry and three different types of goldenberry. Um, so these are these are accessions that we've gotten from different places. Like our goldenberry came from Colombia, South Africa, and India. And our <clears throat> similar story with our ground cherry from different places. So we gave them seeds, and we gave them I don't know, like ten to twenty seeds. And they we gave them instructions on how to germinate them and how to grow them and how the do's and don'ts of, of it. And uh, and it was great. People would send us pictures and, and keep track of things. We gave them a form. You know, we, they had a form to take information down and provide it back to us. And and um, so yeah, it was good. It was good to hear about the flavors and, and you know. And uh, there was one person who said, I've, I've been a gardener for 14 years and I've never fought so hard to save a plant like the golden berries because <laughs> of the insects. <laughs> so, wow. Um, so they yeah, pretty so, much grow where, you know, if a home gardener was growing tomatoes, they would grow in the same place a tomato would grow. So that, that mm -hmm. makes them really versatile. They, they can grow in all those different states, right? Yeah, summer. that's what was really, you know, it was really made this um, kind of a, a good um, productive project is that they do, you know, like the ground cherries, Go very similarly to tomatoes as far as harvest time. The golden berries take a bit longer, and that was also uh, good information for us to know about improvement. That we'd have to look at different maturity types for different regions because in the warmer areas, the golden berries actually produce fruit for people, ripe fruit. But in those areas, like here in Ithaca, New York, where you know it's, we get a frost in late September, early October, um, we didn't even have you know a lot of you know participants didn't have a whole lot of fruit at that point um, from the golden berry. They did from the ground cherries. So that was also helpful information, knowing and the target traits for us to to look at. So what's the future of the program? Are you going to keep doing it and growing it? Yeah, so so we kind of um, kind of lost some wind in our sails when after COVID because some of the funding agencies weren't um, can, you know they either closed down their call for proposals and we didn't have an opportunity to submit. Um, but we are getting back to it. We have a website called the Fissilis Improvement Project where we have information about the Fissilis. We we have a blog series on crop improvements and we're getting back to rejuvenating that. Um, and the future will be that we're going to bring along. This um, the the eggplant story and have that as an underutilized species and then um, select seeds for people to grow. Be the first on your block to grow these really prickly <laughs> type <laughs> um, eggplants and so we'll, we'll work it into more of a 
not so much the Fiscalist Improvement Project, but more of an under you life species improvement project um, and uh, branch out and still include the ground cherry and goldenberry, but um, also the, the different types of eggplants. Well, we've talked for almost 20 minutes um, about your research and the importance of your work. Um, and breeding methodology and kind of how you do things hasn't even come up. And I love that we're focusing on the societal and consumer benefits and not the methodology. But fans of my podcast and our people who know me know that I'm also very passionate about plant breeding and using new tools for great outcomes. So tell our listeners how you were able to develop the new ground cherries and golden berries that you're working on to try to breed for these different traits that are going to make it more commercializable. Okay. So, um, so a lot of, we did a lot of our learning in tomatoes. So tomatoes are great, what they call model species. So, so my collaborators, Zach Lippman at Cold Spring Harbor Lab and, and Mike Schatz at Johns Hopkins University, we had a project where we were looking at um, gene functions as it relates to uh, fruit characteristics and plant growth habits and, and flowers and you know structure in tomatoes, and we um, we we were doing something called a reverse genetics approach where you're knocking out the expression of genes to then see how that affects the characteristics in in the end. And um, one of those tools that we use is called CRISPR, and I'll talk a little bit about that, but. Once we worked with tomato, as I mentioned earlier, we said, let's now take an underutilized species that's had very little improvement and use CRISPR as a tool to uh, see if we can fast track the domestication, fast track improvement of this underutilized species. So, um, you know, again, being familiar with genes in tomato, ground cherry and goldenberry, the Fissilis group is in the same family as tomato. They're not closely related, but related enough that what we learned about the genes in tomato, we could apply that to the ground cherry and goldenberry. So one of the first uh, places we started was in plant growth habits. And I mentioned that they're very wild and sprawling. And we use this technology called CRISPR to knock out the expression of a gene in um, ground cherry and goldenberry that would make them more compact. And the way we learned about that gene was that um, this gene was back in the 1920s, a grower identified a more compact tomato plant in his garden, in his field. And you know how tomatoes, there's the indeterminate type that just grow long and lanky. But he, but there was this one, these, these compact plants. And over the years, people um, studied what made that more compact. And it turned out it was a mutation in one gene called the self-pruning gene that made that tomato more compact. And so we're using CRISPR to, in a sense, create this mutant or this mutation. And, you know, mutant always has a bad connotation. Yeah. You know, it's always bad. It's evil. You see it in the popular press. But in the case of agriculture, these spontaneous beneficial mutations can really, you know, have a, a good impact on improving plants. So we... Um, we went on this journey of improving ground cherry and goldenberry by using CRISPR and creating these these mutants and affecting the characteristics. And you know, CRISPR is this um, fairly recent new tool. It's again, it's a tool, and um, it's a it's a tool that helps us to make these precise tweaks right in the DNA of a plant. And I heard someone describe it, which I thought was a really good way to describe it, as editing a book. So if you think of a book and all its chapters, that's what's called the, the plant genome or the plant DNA. Um, and then you can use, 
you know, you go in and you edit that book and you can, you can change words, you can delete words, you can add words, you can delete letters, you can change letters. And that's basically what we do. We use CRISPR for is for changing that genome or that DNA sequence of plants. And it's very specific. We could zoom in right in that region that we want to change, whether we're, you know, knocking out the expression of a gene like that mutant I talked about, self-pruning, or we want to um, what's called express a gene more. Um, and, um, you know, just, again, you're doing this right in the plant's own DNA. So no foreign DNA is being brought in to do that work. Right, yeah. right, yeah. So how do you think CRISPR can be used to help us solve some of the big food challenges like climate change? And, and how how is having this technology going to help us go a little faster? Yeah, you know, the improvements I mentioned in ground cherry and goldenberry, um, we were able to have our first improved lines. They needed to be thoroughly tested um, in, you know, in the greenhouse and the field. But it took us two years to, to affect um, you know, those characteristics and to pr improve that growth habit. Um, so that really, you know, compared to plant breeding, which, um, you know, plant breeders are just um, an amazing group. You know, they, they don't deserve the credit. They don't get the credit that they deserve um, for what they do. And, um, you know, so but CRISPR is this tool that can help speed things along. I always think of it as, you know, kind of you're giving the breeder kind of this palace of paint for them to, you know, create this, um, these new improved plants. And it, but it just helps it helps to shorten the time um, for that because we you get this variability right with the CRISPR um, that's often the, a source for plant breeding. So so how does it how can that help with climate change? Well, one of the one of the um, outcomes from climate change is we're seeing an increase in diseases and insects on plants. And um, there's something called one one avenue is there's something called susceptibility genes. And those genes make a plant more susceptible to diseases. And you can use CRISPR to turn off those genes to help make a plant not be so susceptible. And you can do that in a, you know, a pretty um, more direct way than maybe you could with plant breeding. But then that material could be used by breeders to put into their, into their what's called germplasm. Um, and you know, knowing that we don't have a lot of time with, with climate change, I sometimes, you know, worry that we're you're trying to play catch up um and we need we need to get there quickly and CRISPR is a tool that that can help you know do you always need CRISPR no but it certainly is a tool that that can help um you know get to that end product faster um than what we you know faster is what we need it for climate change so for instance there's a, a story about coffee um you know coffee is um the, the higher quality coffees are grown in the higher regions, but it's getting more difficult with diseases because as the temperature increases, we're seeing increases in those temperatures in those regions, which is causing more of a problem with um, diseases. So <clears throat> we really need to, um, you know, to think about some alternative approaches pretty quickly. That's a great description. I've heard you talk um, in videos and webinars and stuff to people at all different levels of, in, of uh, scientific knowledge. And you're really good at bringing the description to a level that isn't scary and kind of makes sense to people. Is that something you learned or is that something that is innate in, you know, how you're able to describe things? Well, well first I want to thank you for, for saying that because that's kind of one of my proudest moments when I give a talk is when people say, you know, I understand it now. I was able to follow <laughs> you. <laughs> and, um, 
And that's like, okay, I, I don't, I'm not trying to wow people with what I do. I really want them to understand and, and realize the importance of, you know, why we do what we do. So it's, I think it's a combination for me. It's a combination of both that I've always, um, I love learning, but I also like teaching and I like really engaging with people. And I've also um, taken opportunities when I can to go to science communication workshops or, or talk to people who are kind of the leaders in the field about science communication, um, about um, how best to engage with the public. And I know after one of my workshops, I changed my, com- my approach completely from my presentations when I talk with, um, with, the, with the public. And it's really um, been very effective for me and, 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 and you know, kind of getting that point across about why we need to do what we're doing with mm-hmm. you know, these different technologies. Yeah, and focusing on the benefits. What advice would you have to <clears throat> scientists who know they want to go out in the community and talk about things like CRISPR, but um, meet with glazed eyes or horror when they just get down and talk about the details? Like, what's a good thing for us? What kind of training should a scientist get to be able to, to communicate the benefits? Well, I, I think, again, I mentioned that workshops, I, you know, for me, going to these science communication workshops, um, reaching out to people who are in science communication and, you know, having them, you know, meet with them and, and sort of run by them what you're thinking of presenting. And they can definitely give you pointers on that. And I think you also have to, you have to, it takes work and you, you have to be willing to do the work, but you have to see it from the perspective of people in, in, in any field about, um, where they're at and what they need to understand as far as to help follow what you're talking about. And I look, think of it as a language. You can't just jump right into that, you know, more advanced language without, you know, starting with the basics and taking people along. And, and I always say you're kind of, you're, you're telling a story and you need to start from the beginning. And then um, again, really take into consideration where you need to change your language and your jargon to make sure you're not losing people. But I, uh-huh. again, I think just, science communication workshops and you know, reaching out to people who are, who are doing this as professionals. Great. Thanks. So my last question is, what are three things you would tell consumers about using gene editing in our food? So I think, um, so one of those is that it really can help improve the quality of our food. I know there are um, groups who are looking at, you know, seedless black raspberries. Uh-huh. There are groups who are looking at, trying to improve the flavor either you know either change something that's not the kind of distasteful even like us with golden berries there are some golden berries we have kind of an off flavor um we're not working with those but if those are the kind you know they're grown in particular regions we want to understand how we can improve that flavor also shelf life you know there are ways to be able to look at shelf life um with using gene editing as well and then you know we talked about climate change and, and ways to make sure that you know, we're, we're keeping a secure food supply and we're addressing those issues with, um, with drought or, you know, in, increased insect or, or disease problems um, as well. And, you know, I think it's also, you know, there's another avenue where people are looking at allergens in foods. So if you know about the peanut allergy uh-huh. and there are groups who are, you know, doing this gene function study to understand what genes are responsible for those allergic responses and using CRISPR to turn off um, those genes so that they wouldn't be as allergenic um, in, you know, in, in peanuts. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more about your program or just more about your work? 
Sure. So we, um, so our website is uh, Boyce Thompson Institute. If you look up the Boyce Thompson Institute, there's a faculty page there. Um, they can learn more about that. I have a Twitter account. People can just search for me on Twitter. Um, I also have LinkedIn. And um, if people want to get in touch with me directly, I'm happy to take emails and they can find my email address on the Boyce Thompson Institute website. All right. Well, thank you so much. This is a really fun conversation. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Vani. It's great to have this opportunity. And I, you know, I hope that I've um, made a difference in, for your listeners and um, I've really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Fresh Takes on Tech, a podcast from the International Fresh Produce Association. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep delivering the latest on produce technology. Thank you for listening. Until next time.